Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, Connect, which dives into different relationships. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, welcome everybody here in the house, everybody who's joining us online. We're glad you're here. We're in the middle of this series called Summer in the Gospels, and I'm excited about today's message. So, has anyone ever done something to you that was so bad that you promised yourself that you would never forgive them? I know a woman whose brother was murdered, and she told me that she would never forgive the people that did that to her brother. And, you know, I can sympathize with her, and murder feels like the unforgivable sin. Then I read about people like Gladys Staines and what happened to her and her family. Gladys was a missionary in India. She went there in 1981. While she was working in a ministry for people who were suffering from leprosy, she met another missionary, Graham Staines. They fell in love, and two years later, they were married. On January 23rd, 1999, the Staines family suffered a horrible, unthinkable tragedy when Graham and the couple's two sons were burned to death when their jeep was set on fire by a radical Hindu leader and his supporters. Gladys and the couple's daughter were at home that night, and they were spared. Not long afterwards, the news media prominently featured Gladys. This was in India. They featured her because she publicly forgave her husband and son's killers. Now, obviously, to be able to forgive the murderers of your family is an amazing and remarkable thing to do, but what Gladys did was seen as even more profound and, in fact, countercultural in India, a place where sectarian violence is rampant and obviously deadly. As one leader from India wrote, To appreciate that forgiveness that Gladys gave, you have to remember that India's birth as a free nation came with the terrible pain of Hindu, Muslim, and Sikh sectarian riots. About 10 million people were made homeless by those riots. A half a million to a million people were killed, including Mahatma Gandhi. 50 years of secular democracy and education could not free us, he writes, from this destructive chain of violence and revenge. Hindu and Muslim clashes still go on, and they have burned literally trainloads of innocent passengers, leading to riots that have lasted for weeks. Frequent riots have reduced Indian Muslims to relative poverty and and powerlessness, and So he he writes about this, and then we learn that in 2002, peace activists in the nation of India gave Gladys the prestigious Gandhi Community Harmony Award. She was one of three recipients, each from a different religion. She said, I accept this award because it was for community harmony, and that is the need of the hour in this country. And she went on to cite from Romans chapter 12 
as a biblical wellspring of her peace activism. Now, that same leader that I quoted a moment ago wrote this, Gladys' simple act of forgiveness became a national phenomenon because it broke the chain of cause and effect of violence in India. And then in city after city, Hindu and Muslim and Sikh and Buddhist and secular leaders gathered to publicly honor Gladys as a saint that people should emulate. In fact, it was only the government of India that was the last in line to acknowledge that Gladys Staines is an ordinary woman with an extraordinary spirit, possessed of a spirituality that could heal our nation, he concluded. So if Gladys could forgive her family's murderers, shouldn't we be able to forgive? Now, obviously, today we're talking about forgiveness, but we're going to look at something that I'm often asked about, and that is the unforgivable sin. So let's look at a passage where Jesus says that there is a sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, you'll find this teaching in, uh, by Jesus in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we're going to look at Mark's Gospel this morning to just get the context. This is, this is in Mark chapter 3, beginning at, at verse 22, if you're following along in your Bibles. But I'm going to start reading, beginning at that verse. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, but by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to them and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan, he asked. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided... He cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So what's going on here is Jesus has been teaching, and he's been healing, and he's been delivering people from demonic possession. And to discredit Jesus, his adversaries, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees have begun to spread the rumor that Jesus himself is demon-possessed, and because he's demon-possessed, that's how he casts out demons. Now, Jesus responds to their rumors with simple logic, basically saying, why would Satan cast out his own demons? If Satan's trying to do things to people, why would he cast out his henchmen that do that? It would mean that he's undoing his own work and his own plans. When Jesus says the, these words, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that someone stronger than Satan has to cast out Satan. And he's pointing out that by his own actions to these leaders, 
He's pointing out that he, Jesus, is that stronger someone because it's his power and authority that are freeing people from enslavement to Satan and his demons. So that's just a little setup to the verse that talks about the unforgivable sin. That's verse 28, so let's go there. So when he starts talking about what can and can't be forgiven, this is what he says. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. So we'll pause there, and I want to just jump over to a verse from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is more specific. He says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now, the Son of Man is a messianic title. Jesus understands that he is the Messiah, so he understands that he's referring to himself. And so, Jesus is saying, you can slander me, you can say whatever you want to about me, and you can be forgiven if you ask for it. But then he goes on, and he points out what the unforgivable sin is, and he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So, one scholar writes about this. He says, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day committed the unpardonable sin by accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. They had no excuse for their action. They were not speaking out of ignorance or misunderstanding. They knew that Jesus was fulfilling the messianic prophecies. They understood that this had to be someone that was sent by God to save Israel. They saw the prophecies were being fulfilled in him, and yet they deliberately chose to deny the truth and thus slander the Holy Spirit. Because standing before them, Jesus was doing all these things, and they chose in defiance to close their eyes, to turn the other way on purpose. And Jesus pronounced those actions as the unforgivable sin. Now, let's talk a little bit about what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. So, one scholar explains that the term blasphemy can be generally defined as defiant irreverence. The term can be applied to such sins as cursing God or willfully degrading the things of God. Blasphemy is also attributing some evil to God or denying God some good that we would attribute naturally to God. And in this particular case of blasphemy, it's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So, the Pharisees have witnessed, think about this, they have witnessed irrefutable proof that Jesus was working miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, and instead of recognizing that Jesus was doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit, they said he was doing it by the power of Satan, that he was possessed by a demon. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is very clear about what's going on, and, or excuse me, Mark is very clear about what Jesus is being accused of and why this is blasphemy. He points out that uh, Jesus said this was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they were saying that Jesus had an impure spirit. In other words, not the Spirit of God. Now, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit has to do with accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed instead of filled with the Spirit of God. 
So the Pharisees, think about this. They were in a very unique moment in history. They had the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. They had the Holy Spirit stirring in their hearts. They had right before them the Son of God standing there doing miracles that their own eyes saw. And if anyone should have been able to recognize the Messiah, it should have been these Pharisees, these students and teachers of the law. Yet they chose not to. They purposely attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, even though they knew the truth and they understood it. So Jesus declared their willful blindness to be unpardonable. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was their final rejection of God's grace. Now, I want you to notice something that Mark says in his gospel. He says that by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, they are guilty of an eternal sin. Matthew says it a little different. Matthew says, and he makes it very clear that this sin can't be forgiven. He says, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come, whether in the present at that moment or in eternity forever. That sin cannot be forgiven. It is the unforgivable sin. So now, of course, the uh, question that might be on your mind right now is, okay, how can I keep from committing the unforgivable sin? Well, I want to take your worries away. Today, there is nothing that you can say, and there's nothing that you can do to or about the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable. Now, why and how can I say that? Very clearly, I can say that because in Scripture, we see that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was unforgivable because Jesus was physically present there. He was doing these things in front of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they were ignoring that it was God in the flesh, and they were saying that this was the devil doing this. And you and I can't do that because Jesus isn't here in the flesh, and we're not denying the power of Jesus. So, the unforgivable sin is not something that can happen to you today according to this definition of the unforgivable sin. But I will make one caveat. There is something that is unforgivable today, and I want to tell you what that is. So, let's talk about the unforgivable sin today. When I tell you what it is, you're going to say, oh, that makes sense. So the unforgivable sin today is to continue to not believe in the good news, the gospel, the truth of what God has done in Jesus when it's presented to you. Look at the testimony of Scripture. We read in the Gospel of John these words, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. So you see it? If you believe in the Son of God, Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't believe in Him, you don't have either Jesus or eternal life. And, and in the first letter of John, this idea is re reinforced. This is what John writes there. This is what God has testified. 
He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So the continued rejection of what God has done in this world by sending his Son and the continued resisting of the work of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus says comes to convict us, to convict the world of sin and of God's righteousness and of coming judgment. That is the unforgivable sin if we die in that unbelief. So if you die not believing, rejecting Jesus, there's not going to be a second chance. All right? You've had that first, second, and who knows how many chances before then. So if you're a follower of Jesus, look, you don't have to have any worries about the unforgivable sin, but if you've rejected Jesus, that's a different story. But there is good news. There is always in this lifetime, in your lifetimes, in our lifetimes, a second chance. We can decide to believe what God has done for us in Jesus, and we can make that decision today because if we die in that state of unbelief, we'll enter eternity separated from God forever. So, let me pause here for a moment and, and explain what God has done for us in clear terms. And this is the gospel message, okay? So, first, we all need to know that God has created us, that He loves every single one of us, no matter what, and that He wants us to enjoy life with Him on this earth, and also to enjoy eternity with Him. But there is a problem, and that, that problem is sin. So, God created us, but He gave us the freedom to choose. We can choose to follow Him, or we can choose to deny Him. And when we choose to deny Him, when we choose not to follow Him, that's sin, just as any time we do anything that is disobedient to what He teaches us in His Word, that those are sin. And our sin, and all of us do sin, our sin separates us from God. And there's nothing you and I can do in our own power, by our own will, in our own strength, by our own plotting mentally to forgive ourselves for that sin. But here's the good news. God loves us so much that He sent His Son Jesus to pay the price for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And now we must make a decision. We can choose to believe in Jesus, that, that He has come to save us, and begin by, if we choose to believe in Him, that means we're going to follow Him, we're going to let Him be our Lord. And that means when we choose to believe in Him and follow Him, we're going to admit that we're sinners, we're going to ask for His forgiveness, we're going to seek to follow Him and all that He has taught us. That's the good news. That's the gospel presentation. And the way you make that decision is very simply, you tell Him through a prayer, a prayer that you can make of your own accord where you admit that you're a sinner and you ask for forgiveness and tell Him that you want to follow Him, or I can actually give you the words. And so what I'm going to do right now in the middle of this message is we're just going to pause for a moment. And I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. And I, if you've never told Jesus that you want to believe in Him and follow Him, 
Today's the day for you. And you can pray these words silently back to him. So here, here they are. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. Go ahead and just pray that silently. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he died to pay for my sin and that you raised him back to life. And today I trust him as my savior and I commit to following him. And we say amen. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time, you've become a follower of Jesus. Congratulations. I want to encourage you to, to lean into that. I want to encourage you to, to let me know so we can send some material to you just to help you continue in that decision. If you may have recommitted yourself to following Jesus, again, send us an email at connect at valleybrook.cc so we can send you some of that material so that you can grow in your relationship with God. Now, let me address one topic of the unforgivable sin that, that needs to be addressed because maybe when this message began, you thought and you feared, oh, you know, maybe somewhere in my life I have committed the unforgivable sin and you believe that you had done something so awful that God would never forgive you. Of course, now you know that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. So, regarding that thing that you did, that sin that you thought was so awful and so unforgivable, I suspect you may have struggled to either accept God's forgiveness or forgive yourself for what you did. And so, let me be clear about this. When we will not forgive ourselves for something that we've done. In effect, this is what we're saying. That Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough for me. That his death wasn't enough to purchase my forgiveness. That his sacrificial crucifixion isn't worth pain for what I've done. So we have to recognize that we need to forgive ourselves. Accept his forgiveness, but also forgive ourselves. Now there's a corollary to this too. There may be someone who has done something to you in your life, like my friend whose brother was murdered. Something that you struggle with forgiving that person for. It was so awful, so painful, so destructive to you personally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, that you just don't think you can forgive them. Here's what you need to know. If that person asks God for forgiveness, he forgives them. And you need to wrestle with that for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus' death on the cross for that person who hurts you is as valid as his death for you and for me. And if they ask for forgiveness, they are forgiven. Now, clearly, Scripture would say that we should also then make amends, even restitution with those that we've hurt. But we need to forgive them. And then there's something else. When we choose to hang on to unforgiveness... We're expending a heck of a lot of emotional energy and, and spiritual faith 
to hold on to something that is not life-giving to us. It is life-destroying to us. So I would encourage you to take that to God. And if you need help wrestling with that, you let me know. And we can talk or we can find someone, a therapist, who can help you work through that. Because it's important that we understand that hanging on to unforgiveness of ourselves or someone else is going to damage us and our following of Jesus. There's one more thing that we have to talk about with regards to this scripture that we looked at today, and I want to talk about it. It's the evidence of saving faith. So going back uh, to the scriptures that we've looked at today, uh, I want to point out that uh, in Matthew's gospel, when he talks about the unforgivable sin, he follows it up with these words, and it's important for us to look at them. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Then he goes on, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So he's concluding this, confront, this confrontation with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law by telling them that by their own words and by their own actions, those things testify against them and they reveal the condition of their hearts toward God because they're living out of that in everything that they say and do. So if you take that teaching and apply it to us, Jesus says that one day, as he was saying to the Pharisees, one day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God and we will either be acquitted by the things that we said and did or we will be condemned by the things that we said and did. How we lived our lives. In fact, Jesus went over this same idea in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me read to you what he said there. And again, he's, he's addressing the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says, watch out for false prophets. For they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from the thorn bush or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Again, he's talking about judgment, about being judged for how we've lived our lives. And this is not about uh, whether we get into heaven or not. This is about uh, the evidence of our, our faith. So, in these verses, there's a message for us. Uh, the evidence of our faith will be revealed by the kind of fruit our lives produce. Do our words build people up? And give them life? Or do they tear people down? Do we live what we say we believe about Jesus? If we do, 
then we'll produce the kind of spiritual fruit that further expands the kingdom of God rather than our own private little internal kingdom. So, uh, let me be clear. How we live our life will not determine whether or not we are saved. Once we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know that we are saved for eternal life. So, this isn't about anything about being good enough to uh, enter heaven or not. We can't work our way to heaven. But when we are followers of Jesus, how we live our lives should be evidenced by the kind of fruit that our lives produce. Our salvation comes from believing in Jesus, but the evidence that we believe in Him will be, are we producing good fruit or bad fruit? And the Apostle Paul went into some length in teaching about this when he wrote to the church in Galatia. He said this, if you're following Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit will produce good fruit in your lives. And then he tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. Nine things that are important. He says, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what God wants to see happen through our lives as we follow Jesus. But then he went on and he said, if you're following your sinful nature, that's going to produce bad fruit. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes that that bad fruit is. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. So, let me be clear. If one is producing this bad fruit, then that is the evidence, truly, that that person has not believed in Jesus because they're not following His teaching, and therefore, they've not truly believed, and they're not going to receive eternal life. But because Paul writes this, anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But let me make one other thing clear, because it's important that you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. So, this is not saying that when you and I fall into temptation and when we sin, it's not saying that we won't go to heaven. Because the reality is we're all sinners. None of us will live a sinful life. Most of us will sin before the day is over. So it's important that we acknowledge that and we deal with that. We seek to ask forgiveness on a regular basis from God. And I would even go as far as this, you know, in this list of what the bad fruit is, it's possible you see something that you struggle with on a regular basis. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's dissension. Maybe it's anger. You know, struggling with a temptation and even sinning does not cause us to lose our salvation. If that were the case, no one would be saved. What this list of bad fruit is describing is someone living a life in a complete rejection of believing in Jesus. You can't believe in Jesus and follow him and his teaching and continu continually live producing that bad fruit. 
So as I bring this message to a close, here's what we need to remember. There is no unforgivable sin that you and I can commit. That's the good news. But if anyone rejects Jesus and continues to reject Jesus up until their dying breath and they, they don't have a, bed, a bedside, a deathbed conversion, they will be eternally separated from God. They won't enter heaven. And of course, this is important. As followers of Jesus, we should regularly examine our lives and confess where we have sinned and seek to follow Jesus and his teaching and produce the evidence of our faith. And that evidence includes the fruit of the Spirit. It includes serving God's kingdom work, being a part of being on the team to do what God wants us to do here on earth. It includes giving to God's kingdom work and, and encouraging those who believe to go deeper in their faith and sharing with others who haven't come to believe why Jesus is important to you. So in a moment, I want to pray for us, but I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And in this prayer time, what I really want to pray for us is, number one, is that you'll have peace about the unforgivable sin, Okay. And I'm going to pray for those of you who may have prayed that prayer to become a follower of Jesus today, that you will lean into that, that you'll send me that email and ask for that information to help you grow in that decision that you have made, or if you've recommitted to following Jesus. And then I want to encourage you to, to lean into looking at your own life. So in this prayer time, I'm going to go into a time of silent confession, because the reality is, is we're all sinners. And Scripture makes it very clear that we need to take time to confess our sins to God. And then I'll close our time in prayer. So if you would, bow your heads. Father, as we come here today, we thank you for the understanding that there is no unforgivable sin. Lord, we thank you that you've told us that uh, we need to be fully devoted followers of you. And you've shown us what that looks like. So Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would lean into our relationship with you that we would take in your word through the Bible and live it out. Lord, I pray that we would lean into talking to you through prayer. And Lord, that we would really take time to even examine our lives and, and say, Lord, are we living our lives for you? And that will require that we take a hard look and, and confess our sins. And so Right now, Lord, we're just going to move into a time of silent confession. And I invite everybody in here just to take a moment. 30 seconds just to say, God, I, I know that I've sinned, and you can fill in the blank, and then I'll close our prayer time and give us an absolution. So God, hear our prayers of confession. say amen. You know, it's important that when we confess, we remember what the Bible says. This is really uh, what uh, um, some Christian traditions call, uh, call an absolution, to remind us that we've been absolved, forgiven of our sins. In several places, the Bible tells us things like, as far as the east is from the west, 
when we confess our sins, that's how far Jesus removes that from us. In the New Testament, we read that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins, and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. So, through your confession, just now, you have been forgiven and purified. And that's a reason to rejoice. So, we're going to stand and sing this final song that reminds us that it's through the sacrifice of Jesus, you could say the blood of Jesus, that we've been washed clean and purified. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.